Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Hi, it's Brett Phillips here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast version of The First Serve. Just a reminder, we are live Monday nights at 7pm Eastern on the SCN Radio Network. So we'd love you to listen and get involved on 1300 736 736. All our broadcast details are at our website, thefirstserve.com.au. The good part is, if you miss any of our live shows, you can listen back right here to the latest edition of The First Serve. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the globes to the champions internationally. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, your open space specialists. GLG, celebrating 25 years of industry expertise and exceptional service. Find out more at glgcorp.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to a big uh, Monday night, 7 o'clock. We're uh, back in our regular time slot that we were originally uh, planned for this year. And this COVID year is, well, thrown around lots of different time slots on SCM. But great to follow uh, Jack Revolt. Nice uh, debut with uh, Tiger Time. Brett Phillips in the chair tonight. Not sure my co-host enjoyed a bit of Tiger Time at the Gabba yesterday. I can see him. We've been doing this remotely for a number of weeks. He uh, always comes with the Sydney Swans uh, cap, and I'll tell you what, it was hard to watch uh, yesterday. Samuel, can you somehow inspire these Swans? What's happened? Yeah, BP, good to be here again. Obviously great to be here for two hours tonight. I'm looking forward. We can actually go a little bit more in-depth. It's going to be nice, isn't it? But, yeah, tough for my Swannies on the weekend. Ugly. Damien Hardwick wasn't too happy with the way they performed, but I think even worse, you know, a couple of guys, we're, we're in big trouble. Josh Kennedy, gone, six to eight weeks with his knee, and unfortunately, Isaac Heaney with his ankle done for the season. So wishing all those guys the best, but hopefully we can just get through this year and be able to field a full-strength team at some point. Yeah, so they need you there uh, in the rooms, uh, because I tell you what, when the Swans are winning... And the camera pans inside the rooms. There's Grothy. Uh, he's just at the back of the huddle there. He's just galvanising uh, everyone. But uh, nice work, uh, Jack Revolt, with Tiger Time, uh, regular part of SCN on a Monday night for the next uh, 10 weeks. And I'll tell you what, the way the year's panning out, because the AFL fixtures uh, sort of been put out in dribs and drabs, the next two Monday nights are going to see us out of action. Uh, but we'll come back and confirm uh, how we're going to be uh, scheduled from here. But great to talk tennis for a couple of hours, Grothy. There's so much uh, going on domestically, globally. It's almost like a continued conversation for us on a whole range of issues. I think we've got some really interesting guests uh, coming your way uh, tonight. Paul Vassello 
who we've been chasing for a little while, a new director of talent at Tennis Australia as part of the performance review. We're going to have a chat to him. Simon Ray, a man that we both know well. I think Simon was on this show a number of years ago. He's coached Nick Kyrgios. He's coached Sam Stozer. He's been back in New Zealand in the high performance area the last few years, but he's coming back to Melbourne. And a couple of women who are doing some amazing things in tennis at the moment uh, certainly have had a really interesting story to tell. Sarah Stone and Genevieve Lawbergs will join us in the uh, second hour. And we've got a lot to discuss discuss Grothy. I think the US Open is where we probably need to uh, kick off this week. From what I'm being told and I think you're getting the same sort of mail this week they're going to make a call on it and if you ask probably what would you say Grothy? About 95% of people they would say no go. Yeah, and that's going to be the tough thing, isn't it? it? They've got to make that decision. I'm sure they're following very closely World Team Tennis, which kicked off in the States uh, last night, their time. Uh, I was meant to be over there a part of that. I'm still sitting here in my study, so I didn't get to didn't get to go over. Didn't get my approval from the government to leave in time. Uh, but that's going to well, be the Grossi, discussion. Can I just jump in? I mean, they probably were better served having you do it from your lounge room <laughs> because they've copped a bit of uh, heat, the CBS commentators at the WTT, for being far too close and trying to give the illusion that they were actually social distancing and they were caught out. That's uh, created a little bit of a Twitter storm. Yeah, a little bit of uh, controversy maybe, but I, I know just from all the protocols that I had to go through even before I was going to get on a plane to go over. The, yep. They're testing players regularly. If, if a player does test positive, they'll still play that player's contract out for the time that they're there. They'll pull them out of the competition. They have got fans on site, but they've got those crowds socially distanced. They're trying to do the right thing. But in saying that, the US Open is going to be watching this and seeing how the players go, how they can be trusted to do all the right things. But at the same time, you look at what's going on in New York. They've closed their borders to, what, 19 states now coming in to New York State. You've got a 14-day quarantine. Obviously, you mentioned to me that District of Columbia, Washington, the, the week before, that's not one of the states on the list. But there's new states being added all the time. There is just so much still to play out. And so much still that has to go right if they do decide to go ahead. So, Grothy, this is my uh, understanding. And, I mean, some of this uh, we already know anyway. But, obviously, the biggest issue that has to be ticked off for the US Open is trying to get an exemption for the players to be able to head to Europe. And that's a huge sticking point and a big stumbling block. We've seen in the last few days Fabio Fanini, Jamie Murray. We've already heard the quotes from Djokovic and Nadal. There's a growing chorus and... Someone told me today, if I asked him out of the top 100, who's pretty close to what's going on, how many are not prepared to go to the US? And he said two-thirds across uh, the men and the women. Now, the US Open have apparently said, we don't care. If you're not going to come, we're just going to play with who's coming. If you don't want to come, that's uh, totally fine. But if they can't get the exemptions, they're in all sorts of strife there. And the WTA, from what I understand, 18 of the top 20 women don't want to play the rest of this year. So there's a bit of pressure from the top women. They're happy to reset for 2021. They want absolute certainty. For the ATP, as we've touched on, Grothy, their big cash cow is the ATP finals. They own it. It is a huge chunk of their revenue. And that's why they want the two slams. They want a couple of Masters events so they can actually legitimately put together a field of eight for the ATP finals in November. And even though they're on a better financial footing than the WTA, this is absolutely crucial. So there is so much uh, going on in this space to try and get everyone aligned. Well, you're right. They, they rely on those tour finals to fund the whole business. And I think we spoke about it a few months ago that 
they thought they were in a position to get through to sort of July next year if, if tennis didn't get up and running, if the tour wasn't running. Now, I still think we'll have something going on here in January. It looks doom and gloom with what you read in the newspaper and how bad Australia is. We're still leaps and bounds ahead of everywhere else in the world. And you've got to think that now we're back in lockdown, especially here in Melbourne. Things are going to turn around again. I think by January we'll have tennis in Australia, which obviously helps all the tours. You talk about the WTA being in a mess, though. China's announced that no international sports will go ahead for 2020 in that country. After the US Open, five of the seven events for the women for the rest of the year are in China. No wonder the women don't want to play. They've got no events that are going to go ahead anyway. It's just a situation where I think if the vast majority would love just to write the year off, but obviously there's huge financial implications. And just on the French, this is the interesting one, Sam, is that they're looking at 50 to 60% capacity. Tickets have gone on sale. And there's been you know so much feedback around this. A lot of people saying, well, 60% is too much. Now, we know the Roland Garros grounds are much smaller in hectares to uh, Flushing Meadows, for example. Now, they're talking about 18,000 people coming into the grounds. And then they, across all the major courts, would have, obviously, uh, the seats set up so that you're not sitting on top of each other. But you know, one quote today, 60% capacity, horrible idea. To make matters worse, they are not mandating masks. If I was a top player, I would play the US Open where there are no fans and have the, rather than have the potential to get players sick. So either way, fans, yeah. no fans. It, it seems like it's, it's just a really, really tough task for tennis. And if they do both go ahead, you might get players. For example, if, if I was European, I'd go play the US Open. It's, it's a better surface for me. Like, depending on whether you prefer clay or hardcore, and you are right about New York there and what you read, because New York has the bigger grounds. The French Open is tiny. Roland Garros, that site is mm. so small, and over the last mm. few years, they've expanded it to out, uh, outside practice venues and this sort of stuff to help accommodate the players. But the fan yeah. situation, you're on top of each other. Everyone moves from Philip Strachier to Susan Longlon. The corridor is about as wide as your bedroom, and there are thousands of people streaming up and down that walkway all day. There is no way you can enforce social distancing at that event. No, it's going to be uh, going to be really, really tough. And they're desperate. We know the French. They've got a roof to pay for, a renovation to pay for. They want to play, but so much to uh, absolutely play at. In fact, I read one line today. Every human endeavour in 2020 results in disaster. Nature always wins in 2020. I just got a text through. 0433 98 Brett and Sam, do you know why Akira Sandilan was disqualified today? I imagine that's the UTR. I haven't got across that story, but I'll endeavour to uh, chase that down. Just on the UTR, Max Purcell. I just want to give a little mention to Max because he did win on the weekend the Sydney event. He's done a lot of work in the last 12 to 18 months with Nathan Healy. Got a, a huge regard for him. He's done a lot of stuff with us here on the first serve and SEN. You know, really deep lateral uh, thinker. And he's got Max into a nice position. When he's ran that 200 marks, that's a tough jump to go to the next stage but he's doing everything and that's all you ask of you know any Australian tennis player we sit here and critique all the time is they're just doing everything they can to be the best version and he right now is in that zone whether it can transform to consistent results stepping up a notch we'll have to wait and see yeah and that's going to be the question isn't it can you do it against the better players when you're on the road and you know we're still waiting to see when tennis goes back but Nathan's been doing great things I had the chance to speak to him a little bit about Max during the Australian Open trying to bring a little bit of humility maybe to what he does too he's quite up and about and outspoken I think sometimes just to get him in that right headspace and you know I think what you saw uh, himself and Luke Saville do as well that's got to give them confidence coming out of the Australian Open as well just just being on that stage and competing at a Grand Slam level in a 
final, what that does to your confidence when you go out on the tour, especially when you're trying to take that step in singles also. I think that's huge for somebody's confidence. Yeah, absolutely. one 736 If you want to join the tennis conversation right throughout the night, we will put you to air over the next uh, couple of hours. Plenty of different topics to weigh into. Aaron's out at Airport West. Aaron, great to have you on the show. Gents, how are we going tonight? Good. Going well, thank you. Interesting topic to start the show tonight. It's uh, Personally speaking, I think it's madness if US Open goes ahead, but it's not probably the place you'd want to be in the world right now. But kind of goes to my point is um, how local comp here in Melbourne can really get up back up and running um, we're getting to the point now, I think, of the year where I know Pennant got cancelled during the week and then leading into local competition, probably given that it's, you know, end of August now, we're looking at coming out of lockdown, makes it hard to run seasons going through the year. So if they struggle with all the protocols they have overseas and at the tournaments with all the perks they get, how it's going to be pretty hard for a local competition to get up and running when you're dealing with volunteers who are expected to be able to, you know, take charge of everything. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think we can almost use probably the AFL as more of an example for our, for our local competitions. Obviously, internationally, tennis has got an issue because of all the players coming together. You look at what the AFL did, they were trying to get community sport up and running. I think tennis can follow more of that pathway, trying to get back like like uh, AFL was, like country footy was, like local footy was. You know, I, I think that's all been shut down now, though. So if they if they can keep the AFL going, obviously that's great. We need to get something going up here tennis-wise. We've been able to do that with the UTR, but... Going back to community level is going to be the hard thing, isn't it? Because all these different clubs, people coming from all different places together, you can't hub them, you can't do that with community sports. So you've got to think that community sport just in general, not just tennis, is going to take a little while to come back yet. Yeah, no doubt. Good on you, Aaron. Thank you for your call. Hey, just the ATP rankings before we take a break. Uh, we've been discussing what they do, the conundrum they found themselves in the ATP, the WTA. You've dissected it. And what's your take on it? Yeah, I think it's a fair way to do it. People will argue either way. Um, they're going to take your best 18 tournaments over 22 months. You can't have the same event count twice. So you couldn't, for example, have the US Open count two times. It'll take your best performance from that event out of the, the two events over the, the two-year period or the 22-month period. They're coming up with a solution, at least they're forward-thinking. I think the other one, which we can touch on when we get a little bit more time later in the show, is the Wimbledon prize money allocation, which has been huge um, obviously, we knew that they had that pandemic insurance policy that got paid out, how they were trying to put that back into their own programs at the LTA and support the British players. Well, now they've come out with that allocation for the tour players, for singles, for doubles, for the wheelchair, for the quad wheelchair events. Yep. And I think that's huge to be able to see that Wimbledon is putting that money back in to support the players as well. Gee, a lot of appreciative uh, tweets I saw from players uh, just with sort of, you know, uh, uh, arms crossed and uh, just saying thank you, thank you, thank you for putting some money into my pocket, Sam. Yeah, I mean, and it is, it's is—it's—it's tough on everybody this time and the players are no different. They can't make a living and it's its not just the top guys. We've seen so many of them playing exhibition events. You know, throughout Europe, we saw Berrettini beat Tsitsipas in a final of Patrick Moratoglu's events. You know, these yep. top guys are still getting playing opportunities, but it's the lesser guys that aren't. So Wimbledon, huge chunk of money that's going back to that playing group and hopefully at least helps everybody get through what's been a really tough year. Yeah, so the 256 players who would have competed in the main draw singles, each receiving what just over $28,000 US. Uh, the 224 yep. players who uh, would have competed in qualifying, each receiving around about 14000 US. So someone did tell me today that a player ranked 200 in the world, we talk about the relief fund, received about eight weeks ago a first payment of around $15,000. So when you combine 15 plus 
14 US. I'm just trying to do my maths from an Australian dollar point of view. For someone who's 200 in the world, at least it's some sort of compensation. And then the US, because they're not having qualies, they've also made a commitment, haven't they, to make a payment? Yeah, and I think when you think about it, related back to what's going on here in Australia, JobKeeper is about $3,000 a month. So, you know, it should be enough if, if that's what they're deeming it to be. If an Australian player's at home and they've got those two payments, it should hopefully be enough to help them at least get through this year and you know not have to maybe give the sport away. At least they haven't maybe had to go try to find other work. They can keep practicing and, and at least survive through 2020. Steve from Burwood, who's uh, just give us an update on Akira Sandland. I've missed this today. Uh, Sandland cracked it, stormed off at the end of the second set before playing the match tiebreak, uh, therefore forfeiting. Disappointing. Uh, look for Akira, not for the first time. So he would have been playing, what, the one in Brisbane? Is that where he would have been? Yeah, I'm Akira? guessing. I'm guessing so, yeah. yeah. There was a big schedule in Brisbane today. I didn't look at it that closely, mm. but yeah, it's not the first time he, he he blows up a little bit. He's a big talent, Akira Sandaland, and you just love to see him fulfill some of that. I remember the first time, Grothy, I saw him at the wildcard playoff, and you saw the single-handed backhand. I reckon he took on Matty Reed, who might have been one of the sort of leading seeds in that particular year. We're going back a long time. You thought, this kid's got it, and we've seen him defect back to Japan, back to Australia, been stuck in the sort of 200s, hasn't been able to get out. But yeah, I agree, he's a, he's a good young talent, but there's so much that goes into being a, a great tennis player. We're going to slip in a break. Uh, we're going to turn our attention back to the performance review. We've spoken to Wally Masua, Brent Larkham, uh, so many people involved in uh, the restructure of Australian tennis to create that ideal pathway to create our next champions. Paul Vassello is an appointment that we wanted to have a chat about. He's the new Director of Talent and he'll join us next here on The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com Welcome back to the first serve on this uh, Monday night. Brett Phillips and Sam Groth with you. A special uh, two-hour edition in lieu of us not being on uh, next uh, Monday night with, of course, AFL footy here on uh, SEN. And we will be on next Tuesday night. And we'll see what happens after that because I get a feeling the AFL is going to be scheduling a bit of uh, Monday night footy. You can give us a call anytime tonight, one 736 736 or keep your texts coming through 0433981116. We're here thanks to Top Agents Real Estate servicing all of Melbourne. Head to their website top-agents.com.au. You can give them a call in the office tomorrow 9558 4599. If you're looking to buy, rent, sell or have that property investment managed, uh, David and his team, great supporters of ours on the first serve. Well, Grothy, we've been pulling apart the Tennis Australia Performance Review for a number of weeks now. We spoke to Wally Masur, the Director of Pro Tennis, to get the overall sort of overview of how they've come to the decisions that they have, Tennis Australia. We've spoken to Brent Larkham, who's been named the head coach of the National Academy, and obviously the team all about trying to build a team of people underneath to develop not just the next generation of elite players, but also broaden the player development pathway and get more kids playing tennis. And another key appointment within that was Paul Vassello, who's been appointed to the new role of Director of Talent. He's had uh, over 20 years in the private sector coaching 
and he's been good enough to take our call tonight. Now that he's had a few weeks to actually get his feet under the desk, uh, Paul, great to have you on the show. Yeah, cheers, guys. Thanks for having me tonight. Well, I imagine, Paul, it's been a, a pretty busy period just to get your head around a whole heap of stuff in, in trying to set the path forward. Yeah, look, it has been. It's been, uh, I probably sit here today in my seventh or eighth week at, at TA now, but, you know, the first six weeks of that was actually all interviews for roles and going through that whole process. So I think to actually sit back and, and start to pull apart my role and, and start to make some plans probably only really started to happen about two or three days ago so it's been a long process to hear but yeah we finally get to that point where we can start doing something paul it's a huge role director of talent what what exactly does your role encompass now at tennis australia um so the role so yeah director of talent so basically i i help oversee the the national development squads around the country in each state um the role out of those um and and pathways that align to that and and underneath that so uh, zone squads that we'll, we might be to pilot maybe a couple of them around the country in, in term three, um, depending on obviously COVID restrictions and, and what people are able to do. Um, and then pathways below that, you know, super tens, um, play development camps, um, opportunities for kids uh, in that space uh, and possible rollout of new, of new programs, whether it's super eights or, or, or just programs that are able to get, you know, that eight to 12 mark really up and going with greater numbers to then hopefully feed through to our national development squads and then ultimately through to, to Brent and, and Chris's program at the NTA in Brisbane. So you mentioned you've been in the job about six to eight weeks. You've got your foot under the table a little bit now. It's great to finally be able to get you on and speak. How many of those programs that are being rolled out have actually come from what you've been working on or were a lot of these in place before you took over that role? Yeah, there's a little bit of both, Sam. So there's like, it's not a total stripped back and, and, and different in some areas. Like you think about the old, um, you know, National Academy, I'll say old now, you know, it was, it was in, in place three weeks ago. There's still players who are in the space at the moment who are getting service through the end of the year with one-on-one sessions within the program. Um, can't just be a clean cut on kids who are receiving stuff halfway through a year, especially through COVID right now. Um, so there is some stuff that's been in place. Um, but the National Development Squad is where a continuation of that, but without the one-on-one servicing. Um, so that's that's not something that's totally new, obviously. Um this stuff like Super 10s, it's, it's going to still be there, but in a different way. I think hopefully more often throughout the year rather than maybe twice per year for six, six times each term in term, term one and term four. Uh, zone squads will be totally new. Um, some people have suggested, is it like McDonald's squads were back in the day? Um, probably not exactly, but there's going to be opportunity again for kids from regional to get in touch with, with kids in the metropolitan area more often in, in squads and match play situations outside of tournaments. So it's, I don't know, is it a 50-50? But there is some, definitely some stuff that's a, a rollover and a continuation. There's going to be some new stuff we get to implement over the next 6 to 12 months. So, Paul, you've had the private sector view for the last 20-odd years. Now you come in under the Tennis Australia banner. So what have you viewed from the outside that you think you can bring to the role? Because what I think Sam and I have learned over the last three or four months pulling this apart is there are so many in tennis that felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect between the private sector yeah. and what was happening inside Tennis Australia? Yeah, look, uh, yeah, so I have been out there for in the private market for a long time. Um, so there is, what, what do I bring to it? It's, it's probably a little bit of an understanding of what I've wanted and, and you speak to so many private coaches over, over the journey of what can what can actually occur. Um, there has been a little bit of a disconnect. Some coaches, not all, would feel they, they have a good player and that player is then simply taken away by Tennis Australia and they get all the private lessons there for free. So why would you come back into your own private environment and have to pay for it? So um, 
you know, that's that's no longer going to be the case. People aren't going to be to go to Tennis Australia and get their two, three or four private lessons per week. It's um, now working in, in partnership with the private coach and more more assisting them rather than the TA program taking the lead. It will be a chance to, to work in with the private coach and add assistance in other ways if, if they want or need it. Um, it doesn't always have to be in private lesson coaching. It might be through squads or match play. There's the, the sports science um, that we can we can help out with. So the disconnect, again, often seems to be about the, the, the good player that somebody loses. So there's a chance now to, to hand that back and work work with somebody rather than, than be the main driver. Do you think that taking them at 15 rather than at, say, 12 is going to help that disconnect and help build the confidence between the private sector and Tennis Australia? And I guess as a second part to that question, do you actually think the private sector is able to facilitate what a high-performance player needs to be able to get them to the point that then they go up to Brent in Brisbane? Yeah, well, in, in regards to, yeah, can the private market do it on their own? Um, no, I, I don't think that that's entirely possible. I don't think it's entirely possible. It hasn't worked all the time for TA either to, to take the player on the on the whole journey. Um, sometimes kids come in and there's confusion. Um, a coach at the NA will move on to another department, another state, or leave the organisation altogether. So I think it's going to be good to work hand-in-hand hand with, with people actually collaborating uh, for a player and, and the family to, to help produce an outcome. I think that the relationship that a player generally has in the first instance is with a private coach. So now the opportunity that when a, when a player and a coach start together, there's, there's a, a 10 or you know 8, 12-year window, whatever it may be, depending on the age the players start. Um, and then when they go off to um, Brent and Chris and the rest of the team in Brisbane, if they're, if they're selected and, if, if, and on top of that, if they actually want to go, um, there can still be some private coach help and assistance with that. I don't, I don't think that the players will be sitting there for 52 weeks straight. There's obviously going to be periods of time where they may come home, whether they holidays or, or who knows, but there's going to be a continuation of, of relationship and service, I think, from both parties the whole way through. Paul, there seems to be, in my opinion, a little bit of a lack of talent coming through. We haven't had a lot of juniors on the world scale in the last couple of years in terms of that ITF world ranking, competing at junior Grand Slams. We'd had so much success at that level, then moving up into the ATP and the WTA ranks. What does tennis do now to be able to compete with the likes of the AFL and the AFL women's now, especially? We're seeing a lot more opportunities for women in sport in Australia. How do we keep our kids actually playing tennis and, and start to get the best athletic talent, not just the best tennis players because that's who plays the sport at the age of 12? How do we actually get the best athletic talent back playing tennis in the country? Because I feel like that's going to be what drives our sport forward in terms of getting numbers on it on the global scale again. Yeah, I think to keep kids in the sport first of all, and maybe better experiences when they're younger, or <clears throat> excuse me, or more experiences when they're younger. I, uh, I've got two young kids myself. I've got two boys. One who, who loves tennis to death, and the other one he, he likes soccer. Um, and I know it's my nine-year-old, but he plays comp on a Saturday. And when in between matches, he he will come on and sit on my knee and eat, eat his banana while the rest of the team go and play on their phones because he's a nine-year-old who he's playing with a twelve-year-old, two thirteen-year-olds, and a fourteen-year-old. So. Whilst the level of tennis is good for him, um, the social aspect is not. So to keep kids hanging around the sport longer, I think we can provide you know a, a longer pathway through Super Tens, where it's more than just you know two, as I mentioned earlier, two six weeks um, blocks per year. If we can extend that out to be you know full, full in, fill in the whole year and providing them with an opportunity to play with with kids their own age and then make tennis friends, that might keep some longevity in the sport. Um, and then we start to keep more kids in the sport, then we start to find out who the athletes are and and, and on all sorts of areas. Um, 
I think that's me personally. That's the way we do it. It's better experiences younger with a, that larger base, creating more opportunity. If we can get more kids involved younger in the greater numbers, then hopefully there's going to be more who funnel through then to each level higher up. Paul Vassello with us, uh, Director of Talent, the uh, newly appointed role as part of the performance review, joining us on the first serve tonight. Paul, did you aspire to work for the governing body, having been in the private sector and running your own business, uh, Vassello Tennis? I mean, you've got a, a great setup out in the north of Melbourne uh, across a few different locations for, for so long. Did you aspire or were you just given an offer that was just, you know, in the end too good to refuse? No, I think I always aspired. It was always something that um, I had been coaching between. 23 years and I've had players in and around the National Academy space for probably the best part of, I don't know, 14 years or so with kids, you know, going to, to nationals and ITF level and a couple of kids off to college. So I always enjoyed working in that space with a better player and it was something I always had in the back of my mind. There's been some NA coaching roles that have come up in the past where, you know, coaches in there and said, you know, this would really suit you. You've got X amount of players in here right now. Why don't you come and coach them here with us? And and that was always the thought that I'd, I'd like to do that. Um, the only reason I never actually jumped at any opportunities for that was the fact that it was it was the same as what I was doing, which is coaching. It just happened to be for the Federation, whereas this role this time, it is, it is outside of what I'd done um, a little bit, and it wasn't just on court. So I just thought it was a good opportunity to throw my hat in the ring and, and see what comes off it. So that's what brought me to Yeah, it was always a little bit of an itch that I wanted to scratch, and I finally finally got there in the end. It seems like a pretty big step up from aspiring to be a National Academy coach to being the Director of Talent. I mean, I'm not sure how many people you oversee there now, though, Paul. Um, directly with me, probably about 14 or 15. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've had teams bigger than that on me before. I used to be a um, in the private market, um, an owner or part owner of an indoor sports facility, and we had over 100 staff there and, you know, 5,000 odd visitors per week. So... Um, not a total stretch, it's just something a bit different. Paul, it's my understanding you've had a fair bit to do with uh, Jane Hoodlicker, the chair of Tennis Australia's uh, children. You've coached them across the journey? Um, you haven't seen them. I actually physically haven't played eyes on the boys for about 12 months. I coached, uh, coached them for about two years. Um, yep. But the boys have been over at Nadal's Academy for the past 12 months. I think they've been back in the country for maybe maybe two or three weeks. So you haven't laid eyes on the boys for quite a while. Um, one or two conversations with them over... Um, over Instagram, over the whole period. You know, it's not easy to talk to to kids at that age at any stage, but especially in the other country, and they've got other things that they're doing. And So, yeah, so yeah, know the family, and but, yeah, haven't actually had a whole lot to do with them in the last 12 months or so. Um, the relationship was with the boys, as it is with all the clients I've ever had in the past. The parents were there to facilitate that, but the relationship is yep. with the kids. So, obviously, got a bit of talent if they're going across to the Nadal Academy. I, I don't know. I, I, I know of them, but I, I haven't really seen their capabilities, um, a bit of talent there? Yeah, like the older boy, Alec, I think Alec just turned 15. So he was, yeah, he finished fifth of the Nationals in, when he was 12. Um, so yeah, Alec could definitely play. But I think he shot up again when he left. He was probably about 5'10". My understanding now is he might be an inch, an inch taller than me. And I'm just over six foot. <clears throat> um, and then young Josh, yeah, well, he left when I think he was, yeah, just before he was 12. And he was one of the better players in Super 10. So again, apart from a little bit of video footage just on, on the technical side that I was included on an email at very early doors and at, at Nadal, but I haven't actually, I haven't actually laid eyes on them hitting a ball for that whole yep. time. So, I, I, and I don't know when I will again. I think they're probably heading off back over if everything's okay, COVID-wise, in the next, in the next, I don't know, seven or eight weeks. I'm not exact. I generally don't have much of an idea of what they're doing. Um, again, once you don't coach them for for 12 months, you tend to lose contact and, and go on with whatever's next. So. Yeah, they could both play. One to uh, keep an eye on. Hey, great to um, have a chat to you on the show tonight. Uh, there, there's plenty going on. It's a year where 
uh, with no tennis, it's a chance to reset and really, uh, you know, set the path forward. And uh, all the very best, Paul, in your role at TA, and really appreciate you coming on the show. No, cheers. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good show. Thanks for your time. Paul Vassello, the new uh, Director of Talent at Tennis Australia. We do need to get a breakaway. We're going to come back. Simon Ray is going to join us because he's another one of the new appointments. He's worked under the TA banner before. He's got a long resume in tennis. He'll join us next here on The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com Welcome back to the First Serve. Monday night, of course, back in our 7 o'clock time slot. We'd love to hear from you tonight. If you're passionate about the sport of tennis, so much bubbling around domestically, globally, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Brett Phillips alongside Sam Groth, of course, the 2015 Newcomb medalist. And don't forget to log on to our website, thefirstserve.com.au, right throughout the week. And also subscribe to all our content. If you simply subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you're on, there's plenty of them out there. Subscribe to The First Serve. You miss our Monday night show, you'll get that. You'll get Crunching the Numbers with Mark Zafoulis and Shane Leonage going beautifully. Aussies only. Great catch up with Alison Bayer last week. A really interesting chat about her journey and there's plenty of the Aussies to go back and have a listen to. And In the Huddle uh, produced by Study and Play USA is really good listening for those looking to go down the college pathway. Grothy, just on the back of our chat there with uh, Paul Vassello, we did get a text come through. 0433981116. Totally disagree. A coach in the private sector can't develop a high-performance player. Having taken a player from juniors to top 150 to a title in a Grand Slam level, I'm gobsmacked if that's the belief that they can't. Yeah, we'd love to know who that was from. And I think that's the question, though. If Paul's saying they can't, obviously you need support of TA, but they're going back to the private sector. So there's still so much that they've got to work out with this whole pathway and how it works. And I guess that's going to be for Paul's department in the talent and Wally's department in performance and how they bind those two together and include the private sector. That's going to be the tough job ahead of Tennis Australia and all of those teams. So as we know, uh, and we spoke to Brent Larkham a few weeks ago, he's obviously going to be heading up the National Academy set up in Brisbane all the academies sort of shutting down around the states, but the national squads in each state are going to operate. Now, we know that Jesselyn Hewitt has been appointed to the role up in Sydney, Sandon Stolly over in Adelaide, and we're waiting for a few more announcements. And here in Melbourne, uh, Simon Ray has been appointed as the national squad development coach. He's uh, come back from a stint over in New Zealand. He's coach Nick Kyrgios, Sam Stozer. He's got a long coaching resume. It's great to have you back on the show, Simon. Hi, Brett and Sam. Good to be with you. Are you excited about the uh, new role? Tell us uh, all about it and what your expectations are. Yeah, really excited, Brett. I think it's um, you know fantastic opportunity for me to be back at, at Tennis Australia as an, as an organisation and as a family, if you like, that um, was a place where I had some incredibly fond memories and, and forged some really strong and meaningful relationships over nine years there previously. It's a an organisation that's got a special place in my heart, and um, albeit I'm a Kiwi, they, they accepted me like a, like what, one of their own back in 2008, and um, I'm privileged to have the opportunity again. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Simon, great to have you back over here, mate. The National Squad Development Coach, what does that mean? Obviously, in the past, Brett mentioned, you've worked with Nick Curios, you've worked with Sam Stozer, you've actually done some work within the National Academy system here, but what does your role entail now that you, you've 
or to the national squad development coach? What is that role? Yeah, I, I caught a part of your conversation with Paul um, previously, Sam, and I think it's a, there's a few pieces to it. I think there's certainly a, a strong focus on on us um, here in Victoria and in the various states and territories around Australia, making sure that product's probably the, the wrong term to use, but making sure that the athletes that are heading up to the National Tennis Academy under Brent Larkham and, and Chris Marnie's leadership, that they're ready to perform and to perform strongly and, and to travel the globe and um, achieve outstanding results that, that make uh, Australia's proud and certainly do it in a fashion that, that make Australians proud. Um, so that's one part. And, and Paul obviously touched on um, the increasing focus on the, the relationship with the private coach and the increasing um, role that the private coaches are going to play in, in athlete development in Australia and in coming months and years and making sure that we're forging those relationships in a, in a really um, respectful fashion and, and that we've got strong relationships there that endure and ultimately that we're acting um, collaboratively in the best athlete, in the best interest of the athlete. Yeah, well, I'm guessing you also just heard the text there that uh, Brett read out just moments ago. Do you feel like there is that big disconnect? And are you trying to, I guess, mend that between Tennis Australia and the private coach? Will that be part of your job? And do you believe, I guess a bit like I asked Paul, that a private coach can do it alone? Or, or I personally believe they'll need the support of Tennis Australia. I struggle to believe, unlike the text said, that you can provide everything you need to for a performance player from strength and conditioning to nutrition to psychology to match play to you know, performance squads. I, I struggle to think that the private sector can do it alone. Is that part of your job, though, to find that balance with a player? Yeah, I think so, Sam. I think balance is a good word. And I think I'd also um, answer that by saying I, I would try to be a little bit wary in, in my own mind about um, making really sweeping statements. So I think it's the, you know, it's always the, the coaches, when I think back on my own very limited and very mediocre playing days, um, it was the coaches that cared the most for me as an individual and, and really genuinely invested in my holistic development and how I was going as a, as a person, as a young man in a in a brutally tough sport um, at times that were the most um, impactful and those relationships that, that stayed with me the longest. So I think I'm loath to say that um, either someone in the private market or someone that works for Tennis Australia is in the best position to do it. I think it's more about the relationships, um, the connection that takes place along the way. Um, n none of us are the same. Yeah. No two athletes are the same. All of us have got different coaching philosophies along the journey. Um, I'd like to think that one thing that served me reasonably well um, in my coaching career to date, and I've got a lot more to learn, but I've got an appetite to learn and grow and improve. And I've been fortunate to have some great people around me, and, and I hope that, and I'm sure that I will, again, in this, in this role, have the opportunity to continue to grow and learn and improve. And I think that's an obligation that all of us have as coaches is, is to continue to try to be better, much like we ask of our, of our athletes on a daily basis. Hey, Simon, we uh, all acknowledge this is, you know, it's a tough sport. It's a pretty brutal sport to make it. And, you know, we've been sort of pulling it apart and looking at how tennis can maybe structure itself better around the world. I was listening to, you know, young Alison By, who's not so young now, but still young in life terms, but she's been around a little while about her journey and how she defines success as someone that hasn't been ranked all that highly, but she's got a life experience out of tennis. So all these different ways of measuring success. I mean, the longer you're in the game, how do you define it all? Because all these young players who have got aspirations, who you know, dream of lifting trophies and being on the big stage, that is, you know, hugely unrealistic for, for so many out there. So how do you convince the young generation to, to take up tennis, knowing that they're maybe not going to achieve the holy grail, but they can walk away from a sport that can obviously give you so much more than just wins and losses? Brett, I think it's a great question. And I think it's in some ways the, the holy grail, if you like, for, for all of us as coaches is, is trying to answer it. Um, I think I've always tried to 
to go about my coaching in a fashion that reflects the happiness of the person that you might be working with over and above the success that they might be looking to achieve. Um, and it's a, a trap that we can all fall into um, as athletes really easily is um, when so much is riding on the outcomes of our performances is our self-worth can get wrapped up in that. Um, and I suppose I'd, the, the second part to that answer, um, I would just try to encourage um, and continually have conversations around the fact that, you know, with, with young athletes, as you say, looking at whether it's worth risking at all, that it absolutely is. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're going to get the outcome, as you described, Brett. It's a it's a brutal, uncompromising, um, relentless pursuit, um, you know, professional tennis. Um, but it's certainly worth the risk, if you like, of the emotional investment and the heartache and the blood, sweat, and tears. Um, if for no other reason than than what we learn and what we what we um, what we grow from, if, uh, if you like, along the way. Marina Arakovic, who was an outstanding um, New Zealand professional for a number of years, she said to me one day, and, and this has stayed with me. She said, "You know what, success is." for me some she said i want to come out the other side of this crazy ride with some kind of normality about me um and that was something that certainly stuck with me so that was her definition if you like of, of what success was for her after a long career as a professional absolutely hey just before i let you go i mean just being back in new zealand we crossed over to matt brown at radio sport a few weeks ago when the new zealand uh, premier league you know sort of was ahead of australia and uh, getting some competition back you know for a country that hasn't produced obviously a, a huge amount of tennis players and doesn't have a huge production line just tell us about quickly your time there and and what what did you feel like you needed to to do to put that organization in a better position and what what are their own aspirations yeah um look i, I was really fortunate to be given a, a terrific opportunity from from um, the federation and from some wonderful people um again a a great opportunity to, to grow and learn and improve. Um, and there's some things that I would have done differently if I had my time over again um, in New Zealand. But in terms of where my focus was, really, I think um, a big part of the challenge there, Brett, was around there's been a culture of um, mediocrity um, and a culture in some ways of failure and certainly a, a culture of um, of uh, a disconnected culture, I suppose, is the best way I could describe it. And in some ways, a toxic culture amongst coaches and, and players and across the pathway for a long period of time. Um, and so we tried to address, um, as a collective, we tried to create an environment where um, we could make some progress um, uh, in changing some of those things. Um, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, the power of culture. And culture for me really is just the way that we go about things. And so um, with a really capable, um, a small team, so certainly a different scope to, to things that are back here at Tennis Australia now, but a really small team, um, we tried to go about making a difference in creating a more positive um, and a more supportive and a more united culture in, amongst athletes and amongst coaches in New Zealand with a view to making success, making or, or, or believing that, that the collective could achieve success again. That was the goal. I'll tell you what, Simon, if uh, they were ever going to add a destination onto the uh, tour, take a tennis tournament to Queenstown. Can you imagine that as a backdrop oh, a place. to have a professional ATP or WTA event? That would be outstanding. It's in my top two favourite places on this earth. Hey, just a really quick one. I know Sam Stoza, as we were going to air, Grothy, you acknowledged this uh, tonight. And I imagine you might have sent a text through to Sam uh, here and Liz on the very safe arrival, Simon, of uh, beautiful Evie. And Sam describing it, obviously it's been a very challenging year, but personally been one of the most exciting and happy times of my life so um you've seen the whole stoza journey but family comes first that's uh it's a it's a great sort of present in a pretty tough year oh how fantastic just um over the moon for sam and um what the the the, the power of of family and and um of shifting perspective to 
I guess what what really matters. So um, just wraps for them and uh, a happy, healthy youngster. And yeah, that that youngster is going to have going to have great parents on on the journey. So over the moon for them. Good to talk to you and uh, good luck. We'll uh, we'll catch up down the track. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, mate. Simon Ray, uh, the National Development Squad coach here in Melbourne. So the appointments are coming thick and fast, Grothy, to uh, put together the uh, the pyramid, if you like, of the uh, performance area here of tennis in Australia. Yeah, and I think. It's only going to be time that will tell us whether they've made the right decisions with the pathway, the appointments. You know, we're not going to know the full effect of this for probably five to ten years, really, if we're getting the best kids in the sport playing again and, and how they're going to end up. Because it's not going to matter when they're 12 or when they're 15 and they go to Brisbane. It's going to matter when they're 22, 25, 30 years of age and they've had a career. That's when we're only going to know how successful all of this is. Starting from scratch, they offer their premium glass repair. They're great supporters of ours. They specialise in the removal of window scratches, bringing it back to its former glory, whether it's scratches on that sliding door that... Grothy's dog uh, causes on a daily basis. Where are the dogs tonight? They've been very quiet in the background there, uh, Samuel. Uh, to the local milk bar, it's been graffiti tagged with a knife. They can remove it. Head to their website, startingfromscratched.com.au. Your windows will be looking absolutely magnificent. Hey, we're not done yet. We've got another hour up our sleeve tonight, Sammy, so don't think about heading off for the roast dinner on a Monday night because we've got a couple of very interesting guests coming your way and we'd love your calls in our uh, second hour on a Monday night. Due to us not being on next Monday night with the footy, we are granted an extra hour tonight. one 736 736 to get involved. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. glgcorp.com Welcome back. Uh, the first serve extending into a second hour on this uh, Monday night due to the fact that the footy will be on next Monday. Adelaide taking on St Kilda uh, with the Crows uh, returning home. Don't know if they'll win, uh, Grothy. They're having a shocking season, the Adelaide Crows. Their worst season in, what, 29 years, I think, in uh, the AFL. So they had to go down the bottom at uh, some stage. But what a fascinating AFL season. Grothy's got his swan's hat on. He could probably talk footy uh, for the next hour. And feel free, Grothy, if you'd like to uh, <laughs> throw in any footy analogies over the next hour. But we've chatted to Paul Vassello. We've chatted to Simon Ray. Plenty of news uh, off the top. And we still think, Grothy, that there's a huge doubt on the US Open going ahead. I spoke to a couple of people today who said it's sort of 50-50, but plenty of people who are quite pessimistic. Uh, we think probably the middle to later this week we'll get a, a call because originally they were going to make the final call somewhere in that first week of August, but they've brought it forward knowing that they've they've got to make a decision. Yeah, they do. And you know, like you said, maybe they just go ahead and have US-only players or people that are prepared to go and don't worry about missing the European season. I know... Chris Guccione, a good friend of mine, was trying to make his comeback this year. We saw him at the start of the year. He was thinking about going and playing all the slams this year with his protected ranking, French, Wimbledon, the US Open. You know, he's one, for example, that now has to make a decision, especially here in Australia with return travellers having to pay for their accommodation now, the costs of flying to New York, paying for everything there, coming back. You know, It's a question for everybody as well now, whether it's financially viable, whether it's safe. There's a lot of question marks around it. And that's just the playing point of view. That's not even the organisation deciding whether they want this thing to happen. one 736 736 You can join the conversation for our uh, second hour tonight. So you're yeah, middle of this week for the US Open and 
getting players in and out. That is the huge stumbling block, trying to get exemptions from the players to head from uh, the US to Europe because we know Madrid and Rome and then the French Open will be the three weeks straight after uh, the US Open. So it's a, it's a really tricky one, you feel, for the administrators and all of those at the top of the game who have had uh, probably a nightmare 2020. But just the differences between the ATP and the WTA are uh, quite fascinating, uh, Grothy. one 736 736. So what did you take out of our two chats in the, the first hour? We had been wanting to speak to Paul for a little while and he was the appointment that got us uh, curious, I suppose, because we knew Brent Larkin had been in the system. Obviously, Wally uh, heading it up. Uh, we know that you know Simon Ray and Jaslyn Hewitt and Sandon Stolly have all been around the TA scene in their respective states for uh, quite a number of years. And, and Simon has had some great world experience, hasn't he, in uh, coaching privately or coaching uh, ATP and WTA players and also being involved in that TA system. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think that's the one that we wanted to speak to. And you know, I haven't had enough association with the private sector of tennis here in Melbourne. Obviously, for me, a lot of my tennis played overseas, played away on tour. You sort of remove yourself from that. So, you know, I'm sure Tennis Australia has done their due diligence with Paul and they've appointed the right person for the job. But I think, you know, you take away from it, how does how do they mend this private sector relationship? I think that's going to be the first one. And then how do they guide the players from the private coaches through these squads that they're putting together, these zone, these regional squads, and then build the player to have enough, I don't want to say ability, but enough of the tools that they need that when they go to Brisbane, they're a couple of years from being able to hit the tour running. That's what they have to be able to create with the development of these players. Now, Tennis Australia took over that and probably hasn't been as successful as we all would have liked in tennis over the last few years. We haven't had the numbers coming through. There's certainly a gap now, I think, behind that. You know, Nick Kyrgios, then to Alexi Poprin and Alex Dimonor. In terms of numbers on the men's side, we don't have that flood of numbers below that. And when Australian tennis has been successful, it's come in floods. There's always been numbers coming through at the same time. That's when we've had our success. And I think that's what they've got to work on is getting those that number of players up so when they go to Brent in Brisbane, they're ready then to take that next step. So, Grothy, can I ask you, what's your observations? And you mentioned Alexi Popper, and we're hoping to have Alexi on the show next week. He's been playing in that UTS, which Berrettini won over at the Moritoglu Academy. We know that Alexi and his family have been residing there for uh, some time. And he and Dimonor have spent a large chunk of their youth outside of Australia developing as tennis players so what do you what do you observe about their development and their progress compared to players who have done all that development on Australian soil well I I don't think it matters where you do it and I love what Simon Ray said it was about developing the player and building that relationship and you know, if the private sector coach is able to do that, then that's going to be what's best for the players. Alex Dimonor has had Rodolfo Gutierrez, his long-term coach, is still with him. He had that for a long, long time. I think that's so important is for the player to find the right coach, and the coach has then got to be invested. It can't just be for a private sector coach is hard because you've got to pay your mortgage and your, your car lease and you know to feed your family and all these things, but there's got to be something more than the financial side of a coaching relationship. It needs to be something special. And I think that's what the private sector coaches, if they're going to develop a player to take him to that level, it has to be something special that they're developing. That's a good point. Uh, I'll tell you what, we're going to welcome in a guest in our next segment after the break who has got a really interesting story to tell and uh, is uh, someone that's lived abroad, coached abroad, and also been involved with the system here. Sarah Stone, she's the CEO of the Women's Tennis Coaches Association. Association 
and she's also been a professional coach and did, of course, uh, play as a pro many years ago. All thanks to 100 Words, they're a network of active local communities with the aim of improving men's mental health and reducing male suicides. Check out their great work, 100words.com.au. We're right behind them as an organisation. They have a regular mate-to-mate webinar, if you like, every Tuesday night. Mark Worthington uh, of Basketball Fame will be the special guest tomorrow night. Uh, Grothy, I know you're going to be appearing uh, in a few weeks' time, so it's uh, it's a really great cause, 100words.com.au. Sarah Stone, she'll join us next here on The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. glgcorp.com. The first serve, uh, second hour. This is not going to happen every week, so Grothy, let's make the uh, most of this a special two-hour edition tonight. Your home of tennis every week on SEN, the only weekly dedicated tennis program on Australian commercial radio. So I see plenty of you out there on many tennis forums. You have a forum here on the radio. You can call in any time and discuss passionately the things that get you excited and the things that you'd love to see improved in tennis. one 736 736 or on the text 0433981116. Don't forget, keep checking out our website, thefirstserve.com.au. Well, Sam, we're going to have a chat to a lady who has uh, had a long history in tennis. Uh, she was a player, of course, won 11 ITF doubles titles, and then went down the coaching pathway at a fairly young age. Coach Sam Stoza, uh, Alexander Krunich, uh, her, uh, of course, maiden title on the WTA Tour, Alexa Glatch, American player, many other players along the journey. She's just come back to Australia after 11 years in the United States as a professional coach and also the founder and the CEO of the Women's Tennis Coaches Association, which is all about helping educate coaches on how best to coach female players very passionate about that space sarah stone lovely to have you on the radio thanks for having me on tonight brett and it's great to be with you guys uh, nice to be uh, back in melbourne or beats being probably in the u.s uh, right now sarah they're in a, a state of disarray led by the great man with the the tie that goes below his belt which uh, shouldn't be allowed <laughs> anywhere sarah hey listen let's deviate from tennis have you got a view on my man donald trump and what's happening over there seeing as you've lived oh, in the u.s for throwing you straight years. under the bus <laughs> Throw me straight in there. Well, you led with great man, and I'm not sure that that, that was the best thing to lead with. It is a state a of disarray. I have gone from lockdown to lockdown. So it's been a pretty interesting experience. I'd just like to see him wear a mask. Let's just start with that, and, and that could be a good foot forward for the president. No, no, exactly right. Sorry, I didn't actually mean to deviate there, but... Sometimes I get, uh, sometimes I just digress when you're doing a live radio. But you're very passionate, Sarah. I mean, you've been involved in in tennis here in Australia. You've seen how tennis operates in the United States as well. Uh, your father, Terry, I haven't met him, but I'm told he's an absolute icon in coaching circles down there at beautiful Grace Park, which I actually walk past uh, most days, not being uh, too far away. But tennis has been in your blood, hasn't it, uh, for, a, for a long, long time, and you're extremely passionate, particularly about the women's space. Yeah, I've been in tennis for as long as I can remember. My mum tells me that I wanted to start lessons at three years old. My dad was coaching, obviously, at Grace Park, and and also a great player from America. Her name was Barbara Potter. She was number seven in the world. So I grew up running around the corridors of the Australian Open when it moved over to Melbourne Park and been around it ever since. A very different experience working in America. I'm an American citizen now. 
uh, that means I can vote for it in the election. So we'll see who I who I decide to vote for. <laughs> but things are, things are going pretty differently over there. Actually, it, it's been interesting to see that I listened to a little bit of the show today that they don't rely on the uh, the government governing body producing the players. A lot is out in the private sector, and that's something that. I'm pretty encouraged to see that Tennis Australia is going that direction because I believe it's a, a big step forward. Yeah, is that a big change that you, you're a fan of here? You mentioned that you like that. You haven't been here in the private sector, but you've been still very close to what happens here in Australia. So we've known each other for a long time. I do know Terry and your mother down there at Grace Park, unlike BP. But uh, I guess you say it's encouraging, but how do you think that can work, the relationship between the private sector and Tennis Australia? And how do you think it's going to best benefit the player in that situation? Because that's what it's all about in the end. Absolutely agree with you. I think it's encouraging because I think we have a lot of really good coaches in the private sector. And whether or not we're able to bring that together. America's completely different beast. You go over there, it's a culture that encourages people to be their best and go after their dreams and can achieve whatever they want to achieve. And they, they are not reliant upon the government to survive and like that. So it's a totally different culture. And I'm not sure, I don't know how Tennis Australia is going to bridge that gap between being a national body and working with the private sector because historically that really hasn't been the way that it's worked. But why I think it's pretty important is you look around the world and so many players, particularly in the US, these young players aren't coming up through a national training centre. I'm going to speak on the girls' side. Coco Goff, she's worked with her dad, she's worked at an academy down in Florida. Sonia Kennan came through the same academy. They're not there going and going away from their coaches that they had when they were younger developing players, then to be kind of yanked into working with another coach who works for the Federation. I don't know, and I've listened to what you guys have been talking about, whether or not, I don't know how that's going to work in Australia, but I do think that you should continue to work with the coaches that develop you, and there should be a bridge between the the national body and the private sector for the players' success. Sarah, having come back to Australia, we'll talk about the WTCA in, in just a moment. I'd imagine with all the experience you've gained in the United States, that you'd love to be able to contribute to the, the Australian tennis scene here and in, in continuing to you know, develop our talent, particularly on uh, the women's side. What, what, are you, what are your ambitions? What are your, what are your goals now that you've got your feet back on the ground here in Australia of how you would love to contribute and bring all the experience you've had to uh, Australian tennis? One of the things I've realised about coaching while I was over there is that when I left, I, I thought I knew quite a bit I guess like we all do but when I've gone over and worked in a different country and experienced lots of different things about the way that they operate and spent some time in Slovak Republic and places like that I really feel like it's pretty valuable for us as a nation to draw upon experiences of coaches who have spent some time working outside of kind of what tennis in Australia is it's almost like a bubble so a lot of us the players don't realize what the competition's like outside of our country and particularly the coaches don't know a whole lot about the way other things happen and it becomes quite difficult to sort of form your own philosophy because you only have one experience so that's something that I really think that we we should be looking for I'm keen to be involved in tennis in Australia I was interested in a couple of those issues but I've and applied for a couple of those positions but I haven't worked for a federation as such. I've coached six top 100 players and obviously Sam had pretty good good success in the time that we worked together but uh, I don't know where I fit. I, I would really like to help a lot of the female coaches get involved. 
I, I would like to see a place where we have a lot stronger representation of female coaches in those top positions in the performance on the in the pro space at heads of academy. So I'd I'd like to continue to encourage women to get into that space, but also to help the girls keep getting better and and be part of creating a great culture. Like Razor said, I think that's a, the bottom line for everything. If we have a, a cohesive unit where everyone works really well together, not sort of like the the inner circle on the outside that one's better than the other at the private sector and and obviously Tennis Australia has to work well together and I'd love to be any part of it if if an opportunity comes up. Well, Sarah, you've been a huge driver as BP mentioned in women's coaching, so having more women's coaches involved and keeping them in the game. Obviously, Andy Murray a huge driver by having Emily Moresmo in his camp. I guess, is there is there a space to have more women coaching on that men's side? Um, is that something that you see growing, uh, women's coaches coaching in men's sport in general? Yeah, I'd love to see that. I would, obviously, there are a few. Uh, I know Galileo and Garcia was, uh, for a period of time, was the Spanish Davis Cup captain. Uh, I, I know Conchita Martinez very well, and, and she did a, a really good job in, in the Davis Cup role. I think that was a difficult space because it's not really what the Spanish guys wanted to begin with, much because most of them probably had never worked with a female coach. So it was just a foreign thing. I think it comes down to just getting the awareness out there, getting guys to work with female coaches when they're a little bit younger so that when they get along down the track and they're in, in the pro space, that it's not something completely weird. When I was in the States, I worked with a couple of guys that have world rankings before I came back. And it's totally normal for me, but it's not normal practice. So I would say that it starts with younger guys working with female coaches and then it's something that's a lot more normal. And uh, Actually, other sports are doing it a lot better than tennis. I mean, there's a couple female coaches, I think, with ATP players that usually it's family members. Yeah, I think the NBA has a couple of female assistant coaches, I think even the NFL now, but it's not just women in coaching positions. I think we've got to try to keep, and I would love to know how you would think we could do it, but more girls, more young women in the sport. We mentioned with Paul Vassello earlier, obviously the AFLW now is creating more opportunities for female athletes. We're saying the Big Bash have, have a female version what has tennis got to do to keep more of those young female athletes in the sport? Because it hasn't always been an accommodating sport. It's quite daunting for a young female to go out on tour. Yeah, it is. It's Well, it's a big picture, actually. There's, there's a lot of things that we need to do. But I think it starts with we need to hire more female coaches. And that's just got to be something that's got to happen from the top down. We need the equal equal number of female coaches working in the pro space and I always think that everything as, as we look at the whole picture of particularly tennis in Australia if we're trying to get co- female coaches into the industry how many female coaches do you think want to go into an industry where there's a really heavy glass ceiling that they can't get past because when they look beyond as to what they could aspire to do as they navigate their career and, and try to reach the top of it that you look and you see there's barely any female coaches and I know right now everything's shuffled up and uh, Nicole Chris is working in that pro space she's one of my best friends and it's amazing but we have to get where we're 50-50 in in those jobs I think on both sides working with women and with male players but it's hard to ask someone to go into an industry where there's a, a, a lid on their development and unless we can show that representation at the top of our sport, I, I just don't see that many female coaches wanting to 
go down this path as a professional tennis coach because they can only have so much success before they're totally limited. We, we were having a chat on the weekend, Sarah. The, the AIS, we were talking about them, just the fact they, they might look to have that sort of 50-50 setup of male and, and female coaches. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I did, we did chat about that, and I, and I, I did hear uh, from someone a little bit of a whisper that there may be a restructure into the way that they're hiring coaches at the AIS and that they want to see that all sports have... 50-50 male and female coaches in their coaching departments and that's something that I'm a firm believer of and, and I know not everybody is for quotas. There's people out there and particularly women that say I don't want to get that job just because I'm a woman but in reality if it's men hiring men even if the woman is is the is a highly qualified candidate it's all, in all likelihood she's not going to get hired and I, I would want to get hired because I was a woman in that particular circumstance because otherwise so many women are not getting those opportunities to even get a look in even if they're so well qualified and above and beyond what their male counterparts are we're just not getting hired i mean the evidence is there you can see it's across the globe you look at federations you look at the number of women in their performance space and it's so low and i think in a nation that's really for women it's a good opportunity for us to set an example for everyone else in the world and Higher more female coaches than at least percent in our uh, governing body. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, we could talk for an hour, but time <laughs> is on the wing, and we'd love to get you back, and we will talk uh, down the track. But the WTCA, the Women's Tennis Coaches Association, the only association in the world that is dedicated solely to women's tennis. Just give it a quick plug for us, Sarah, where people can find uh, the WTCA, and and how people can can maybe sort of get involved here in Australia who haven't heard about it. A uh, quick plug. I came across conversation with uh, my my best mate and Nicole Cruz we were talking about what we could do to affect women in coaching and we thought the best thing that we need is actually get some education out there about what are the best practices when it comes to working with female players and so we established a platform or well, I did more than Nicole it was uh, the WTCA uh, on Facebook we have a website WTCATennis.org based out of America and all of our stuff's online we have a couple of great uh, conferences around the world in New York and Paris and London and thereabouts and if people want to get involved in the social media community it's a great way as you've been talking about get online and chat in the forums and uh, advance yourself as a coach and just get yourself armed with as much knowledge as you can and that will help yeah, great stuff. Hey, really appreciate the chat. Thanks for coming on. Uh, some really interesting stuff to uh, pick apart there. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Sarah Stone, Women's Tennis Coaches Association CEO. She's come back from 11 years over in the States and has been a professional coach for a big part of her life after being on the Pro Tour. Grothy, before we break. And I think this might be the thing that we can tap into here in Australia is all these Australians are going to be coming back from overseas and COVID might have not allow them to work overseas, but they're going to be home right now. So guys like Paul Vassello and Brent Larkham and, and all the hierarchy at Tennis Australia might have all this knowledge base that they may never have in one place again. And whether they yep. like what someone says or don't like what somebody says, at least they have a collective mind, a collective group all here that they can tap into, and I hope they're doing that. Well, there's one guy I'd love to get on. 15 years ago, he won the men's doubles at Wimbledon, Stephen Huss, who unfortunately, as part of the USTA's cost-cutting, lost his role, and I was sitting in on it. A great call he did with a lot of the coaches from Tennis Victoria about a month or so ago. It was great stuff, and we'll get Stephen back on the show, but he, I know, would love to get back involved with Australian tennis. He's been involved in America and would have so much to offer. We need a break. The first serve, it is your home of tennis. The first serve, your home of tennis.
thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com. Welcome back, uh, special two-hour edition on this Monday night of the first serve. Uh, we are back to 7 o'clock, although the next two Mondays is AFL footy, so we're going to be sort of manoeuvred around a few different uh, slots over the next few weeks. We'll keep you informed, and the best way to keep across the first serve is our website, thefirstserve.com.au, and all our social media channels. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, 19 years ago, Sam, it was People's Monday at the All England Club. There was a guy who entered the tournament as a wild card at 125 in the world. I think it was his fourth attempt to win Wimbledon. He'd been a runner-up three times, and the tears, they were flowing on his side. I reckon they're probably still flowing for our very own Pat Rafter. Hopefully he's not listening uh, tonight, Pat. Uh, always uh, very popular with everyone. Had his chance to win Wimbledon, but was denied by Goran Ivanisevic in a year where... Monday had to come into play. There was no roof back then, inclement weather throughout the tournament, and they actually let in the people. The people came in who normally would not get a ticket to centre court, and it was one of the great Wimbledon wins. Oh, amazing scenes, wasn't it? The Aussie flags and the kangaroos, the blow-up kangaroos in the stand. Everyone camped out overnight. You know, I mean, amazing for Goran to finally lift that trophy and the feeling that he must have felt after all those close chances, those close losses in finals, I still feel for Pat. I mean, I grew up, you know, Pat was my hero growing up. I loved watching him play and I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with him late in my career and we still chat. And yeah, I mean, it's something that, I mean, I'm sure it still haunts him, but, but what an atmosphere. You'll never get... Now, especially with the roof, you'll never see that again no. at Wimbledon. You'll never get anything no. like it. It's at 9-7, I think it was in the fifth. Oh, just I remember watching Goran try to serve it out, and I remember still watching <laughs> you watch replays of it, and he just couldn't get it done, couldn't get it done, and then yeah, finally serving for it, able to get over the line. But, yeah, I'm sure it haunts Pat. I'm sure it does. It's been uh, an incredible court when you think of you know Jana Novotna on the women's side, the tears that flew because she had obviously had a couple of attempts and couldn't get there and finally you break through and, gee, take that to the grave that you won Wimbledon. Regardless of whatever you do in your career, to say I won Wimbledon at the uh, the home of tennis really uh, would be the most special moment. And he's he's gone on to have some great success, hasn't he, as a coach, Goran Ivanisevic. We actually sat with him, Grothy, at the Australian Open, I reckon, three years ago. It was introduced to him by Mark Safoulis, who dragged out Goran, and he, I reckon he sat with us for 40 minutes and we just talked about a whole range of topics and he was he was terrific and now he's involved with Novak and obviously uh, wasn't a great little period recently with the whole COVID thing with the Adria Tour but he, he certainly had a great effect as a coach. Well he certainly has and I think the adversity that he went through I think his ability and how he dealt with that and then to come back and have that success of winning Wimbledon the emotional roller coaster his experience that experiences that he can pass on to the players that he's worked with. Marin Cilic, he did an unbelievable job with. We saw how much he improved Novak's serving during the Australian Open. I mean, Novak looked in January every bit of a player that may go on to win all four slams this year if he was able to because he'd added that extra string to his bow of really beefing up that first serve. And we know how well he moves, how well he defends, how well he attacks. And then all of a sudden, you've got this guy who's improved his service game with Goran in the box. And... 
you know, he becomes an even more complete player, which is incredible to think. Yeah, incredible career on the court and off the court. But 19 years ago, People's Monday, you remember that great win by Goran Ivanisevic, even if it came at the cost of uh, one of the most popular Aussies in uh, Pat Rafter. But at least Pat did have some uh, Grand Slam success. After the break, Grothy, we are going to introduce you to Genevieve Lawberg. She's got a really interesting story to tell, and she'll join us next here on The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. glgcorp.com. Welcome back to the first serve. Uh, it's amazing. Two hours goes extremely quick, Grothy. We're uh, been granted the uh, second hour tonight in lieu of the footy being next uh, Monday night. So great opportunity for us to have an extended chat to a number of our guests tonight. And one thing I love about this show is we do cover the grassroots to the elite. We chat to so many different people across all the spectrums of tennis, players, coaches, administrators. I'd love to chat to more of the chair umpires. I'm working on that one. Mohamed Layani, he's <laughs> the one I want to get on for about an hour. Someone said to me, you've got to speak to Genevieve Lawbergs, ex-professional player. She's travelled extensively throughout Australia and overseas, 12 years experience at an international level, educated at the University of Central Florida, bachelor degree in psychology, along with a master's of exercise science. She's coaching here in Melbourne, and she's got a really interesting story to tell, and we're going to try and do it justice tonight. Genevieve, great to have you on the radio. Thanks for having me, Sammy and BP. Glad to be here. Very nice to uh, have you on. Uh, I want to go back to when you were 16 years of age. Isn't it a great time? I think when I was 16, uh, life was so different. You had to decide between tennis and basketball. You chose tennis. I imagine you've got no regrets. Yeah, look, I think it's uh, definitely two different different sports. But, um, yeah, I look back and say... Thank goodness that, uh, you know, Jen came to her senses and realised that tennis was going to be a sport that really opened up a lot more doors um, and opportunities for me. And, um, yeah, I'm totally grateful that I I came to my senses. Um, I think basketball, I think the reason why I chose tennis over basketball was that I felt like with tennis you had the, you know, opportunity to really either win it on your own racket or, or, you know, it came down to um, someone just playing that a little bit better on the day while in basketball, it's um, you know, it's a team. It's a really big team effort. You could have played one of your best games, and unfortunately, um, you know, your other team out probably didn't didn't help you out. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a good choice. Now I'm looking back on the you know my my pathway through grassroots all the way through. Yeah, I had a very relatable growing up. Obviously, for me, it was tennis and football. Same age, 16, had to make that decision you split your education in year 12 and you went down the college pathway uh, route something that we've discussed a lot bp uh on this show talk to us about that experience of going to college and brett mentioned here you've got your bachelor's degree you've got your master's you're now doing a uh, graduate diploma in psychology you're in your fourth year at deakin talk to us through that whole experience and and how that educational experience has helped you grow or helped you grow firstly as a tennis player but now also as you go into the coaching ranks yeah no um yeah that's a that's a good little bio um but if it, yeah i'm doing my fourth year at the moment it's uh, i'm i'm completing my thesis at the moment on dietary recall so 
if anyone wants to participate in a study, hit me up. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, yeah, no, I, I definitely, um, yeah, it was a, it was a lot. Uh, there's a lot of you know studying and and you know education behind it. Um, it definitely kind of opened a lot of doors up for me, and I definitely see that the tennis is able to really um, allow everyone the opportunity to to you know challenge themselves on both a physical level but also you know a mental level um you know there's so many different facets of the game and and you know you have to be really courageous and there's a lot of excitement in it and um you know engaging in parts of yourself that you really you know you want to continue to to push um but I think at the end of the day, it's really having a passion for whatever you do in life. It, it, for me, it was tennis and, um, you know, now it's coaching and, and seeing how I can, you know, help the next generation out. Now, speaking of coaching, uh, Genevieve, you're set up down at uh, beautiful South Campbell, one of the cheapest uh, tennis memberships in the country. If you don't mind, you set up your own business. I think that was 2019, late 2019, Tennis Gen. And, and I don't know if you heard our chat with Sarah Stone, who, like you, you know, very passionate about the female coaching space and we've probably got around about that you know 20 percent female coaches in the industry so they're they're a a dime a dozen there's no doubt about that and how proud do you feel to sort of be leading a coaching business as a female at at, you know one of the the clubs here in melbourne i mean that obviously is not something we see everywhere and something that i'm sure you'd love to see continue to grow yeah definitely no that's a good question um bp and and i definitely you know i'm really lucky i'm really grateful to have the opportunity to to be able to coach i think i've seen it you know everyone's kind of gone through their own experiences and kind of thought to themselves you know what i reckon i could do this like a little bit better or um you know have have a little bit more opportunities for young kids and um you know i've i've been lucky enough to really um, learn as a person through the sport and be facilitated by the sport and, and learn some life lessons and now I think it's my opportunity to be able to pass that on to the young kids out there it's, it's definitely a, it's been a, a very big learning experience for me um, you know I, I traveled overseas and I've done some yep. country club um, you know learning and um, now it's really you know opening up the doors for other kids to come through and hopefully we can find the next Ash Barty or um, you know Sam Groth out there um, to get him up to playing at the AO level. Outstanding. Hey, we're going to squeeze in a break because I have to, and then we're going to come back and uh, we're going to finish off this chat. Genevieve Lawberg's our guest here on The First Serve. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGCorp.com. Welcome back to the final part of our show. Genevieve Lawberg is our special guest who we were talking to before the break. Of course, ex-professional who's gone down the coaching pathway. She's set up there at South Camberwell. She's been through the college system. It is a resume, Grothy, that goes for about 10 pages. It is so impressive. And we need an hour with Genevieve. I know you've got a, a couple yeah. of curly ones to finish off. Well, you sent me through all the notes, though. I had to pr- I've literally printed them all out to try to get, get, dissect all this info. I've never had so many notes in front of me to do a show in my entire life. But, Jen, you've got some unique programs down there at Tennis Gen. Acing autism is one of them, connecting kids with tennis. But 
The one that grabbed my attention was Your Hearts and Minds, which combines yoga and tennis, and you've been awarded a Vic Grant f- for that program. Yeah, Sammy, I, can I sign you up for that one? Will you do some Hearts and Minds? Oh, I tell you, my yoga skills are not fantastic. I tell how you, flex, I've let myself, let myself go in retirement a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, we're excited. Um, I think combining, I mean, you, you see the likes of um, Djokovic getting into yoga a little bit. I mean, I, I, I think he swears by it every day, but um, there's definitely a connection between yoga and tennis. But, yeah, we're, we're kind of a... It's a program that we started um, at, at the South Campbell Tennis Club, and we're hoping, you know, fingers crossed by uh, term four, we can start going. But, um, you know, we're trying to just say that for, for young mums especially, uh, the importance of um, how, you know, daily habits of, of tennis and, and bringing everyone together in a really um, nurturing environment. I think sometimes we can be... Um, scared off that tennis is a certain way, but we're saying, hey, let's um, let's keep it light and fluffy and um, take care of your body on uh, in different ways, not just yep. um, you know going for runs. Great stuff. Hey, Genevieve, I'm getting the whisper in my ear, so we're going to run out of time. I reckon you're a, a great example of someone who's you know gone down the pro ranks. It is a brutal sport to make it and get to the top, but it just goes to show how you can stay involved in a sport that you've got a great passion for. And, you know, the college path is fantastic, certainly to get that education at the same time. And then to be able to come back and do either coaching or administration or to be involved in the sport of tennis, uh, it's, I think, a great story. And uh, we really appreciate your time tonight. And, hey, let's do it again in in some other forum. Uh, I'd love to chat to you again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Genevieve Lawberg's out there at South Camberwell uh, Tennis Club, uh, not far away from my neck of the woods. I think I might pop down and have a little look during the week. Nice work by you. We've got through two hours. No, thanks, mate. It's been a pleasure. Awaiting that US Open decision, I think that's the one we're all waiting for at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're not on next Monday night. We're on next Tuesday at 9 o'clock, and we'll keep you posted from there. Thefirstserve.com.au is where you can log on to. Have a great week, everyone. Subscribe to The First Serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to the live shows you miss on a Monday night. Plus our weekly themed podcast content, including Aussies Only, Crunching the Numbers and In the Huddle, produced by Study and Play USA. Plenty of content to listen to weekly. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91